Well, be seated and open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I apologize, I didn't have my microphone on. Hope you could hear that. So we are in the middle of chapter 12 and part 2 of what we began last week with interdependency, not independence. And by way of a very brief review and not going all the way back to chapter 12 verse 1, because of the length of time we have, we're talking about this principle that has come to us by way of God's Word about spiritual gifts. Jesus is Lord of the gifts, are to be used under His Lordship for His glory, not for ourselves. And so as we look at this portion, interdependency and not independence, you can follow along in your sermon notes, and I filled in the blanks for those of you that may not have had it and can't refer to it or weren't here last week. So Paul explained to us about unity. He did that by saying that we are saved by the same Lord, the same Spirit, the same God. He is the one who has distributed the gifts. And as a result of that, there is in verse 12 a singular body, one body, and Paul uses the human body as an analogy to emphasize the unity that is to exist within the body of Christ, most specifically as it applies to the execution of our spiritual gifts. There was great misapplication, misunderstanding about spiritual gifts. And so our physical bodies are made up of many, many individual parts, yet it is but a singular body. There is also, in verse 13, one spirit. You will note that there is one spirit, and we are baptized into one body. The universal body of Christ is singular. The local body of Christ is to be singular. And so since we are baptized into the body through this one spirit, Paul communicates to us two important truths about this body. First of all, it's formation, that we're baptized into the singular body regardless of our ethnic background or our status as citizens. In this day and age, you were either slave or you were free. So the body was formed through our conversion. It's filled through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. At the moment of our salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells us and seals us in our union with Him. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to live for Him and to use our spiritual gifts in the building up of the body for the glory of God. Paul goes on to explain this diversity in verse 14. For the body is not one member, but it is many different... Excuse me, the body is not one member, but it is many members made up into this singular body. So just as the physical body has many diverse parts, so does the body of Christ, yet it is still one. He explains... That within the body there are different roles in verses 15 and 16. And a variety of these roles is essential to our unity. So it appears that the believers in Corinth were either unhappy with their giftedness or they were being told that the gift God had given them was not as important as some of the other gifts that were being exercised within the church. So in verse 17, Paul diffuses this notion by explaining that a foot or an ear is not a lesser part than is any other part of the body just because it is a foot or an ear. Every part of the body has a different function, and this variety of function is essential to completely carry out the function of the body. So this variety is explained in verse 18 as being planned by God. Paul points to God's sovereign choice in placing and gifting each member of his body 
exactly how he desired. In verse 20 and 21, Paul tells us that there is equal value within the individual members, even though they have different giftedness. And in this portion, Paul clearly identifies the problem that is in place in the church of Corinth. Some members with the more esteemed gifts felt spiritually superior to those who were gifted differently than they. They looked down upon those who were gifted differently than they were. And so again, Paul dispels this myth of spiritual superiority by saying there is equal value within the parts of the body even though there is a significantly different function. This diversity is essential to unity in the body and the same is true in the body of Christ. There is equal value in the gifts that God has given us even though the gifts are very different in how they are used. So not just because God chose the gift for us, but because parts of the human body are made with an interdependency. Now we could go on and on and re-elaborate what was already said, and I could go into greater detail about the interdependency of the body, but for the sake of time and to not overly review, we're going to not do that, and we're going to now focus on the new material that is in your outline today. So we're going to begin in 22 and go through the end of chapter 12, but because it's somewhat lengthy, we're going to look at this in two different sections. So a new portion of the outline, Roman, excuse me, number three, is interdependency is now explained. So Paul has explained unity, he's explained diversity, and now he is going to explain interdependency. So Paul is going to turn upside down their understanding and application of spiritual gifts by communicating in a way that is incredibly unique to this culture and somewhat difficult for us to be able to extract all the nuance that is communicated through this. So in this first section, we're going to read verses 22 down to 27 and then break it into smaller parts. So verse 22 says, On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to the member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Now I didn't really emphasize last week the physical body parts that Paul used as a part of his analogy, but in this section we're going to see the importance of them and we'll make a little bit of a further explanation of perhaps why Paul chose these individual parts. So as we look at interdependency explained, letter A... Paul says, all are needed. All the different parts of the body are needed. He begins in 22, on the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. So don't miss what Paul is saying here. As important as some of the prominent members of the human body are, and he has listed those for us, it is possible to live without them. 
These are important, but they're not absolutely necessary. For example, using the body parts that Paul used in his analogy, the usage of eyes and ears and hands and feet highlights some of the most prominent external parts or functions of the body, yet you can lose the usage of these parts and still live. Just because you're blind doesn't mean you're going to die. Just because you lose your hearing doesn't mean you're going to die. Just because you've lost usage of your hands or your feet doesn't mean you're going to die. The parts of the body that are not externally prominent, those parts you can't see, and therefore are categorized as weaker parts, Paul says it is much truer that these parts are necessary. Now, Paul does not identify these parts, but through the study of the Greek nuance and the culture that Paul is speaking to, it is virtually universally understood that Paul is referencing the internal organs that you cannot see. These are considered to be weaker because you cannot see them, and they don't have a visible external priority attached to them. But these weaker parts that you cannot see provide an incredibly necessary function for the body's survival. After all, you cannot lose your lungs or your heart or your liver or your brain and live, can you? You cannot live without those parts. These parts that you can't see that are considered to be weaker and therefore less prominent, are in fact more necessary for the body's survival. You can notice the breathing of your lungs, and you can notice the pulse of your heartbeat, but the work is not nearly as obvious as what we do with our hands or our feet. For example, right now you are sitting here, and your heart is just going. And you're not telling it to do that. You're not thinking about it doing that. It's just doing it. And apart from your heart doing that, you'll cease to be. You will die in your seat. The same thing with your breathing or the functioning of your brain or the other internal organs that you cannot see. These these less noticeable parts seem to be weaker than much of the rest of the body. For example, the parts that Paul has um, brought to our attention, eyes and ears and hands and feet. But these parts are more necessary. This is the exact opposite of what the Corinthians believed and practiced about spiritual gifts. Hey, if I can't see it, and if I can't hear it, and if I can't feel it, It's not important. Paul says that is absolutely false. In fact, the opposite is true. That which you cannot see and cannot hear and cannot feel is much more necessary for our survival. Now, remember that analogy taken out to its most logical conclusion will somewhat fall flat. But Paul is making a very significant point here. Just because you consider it to be weaker and not as necessary because you can't see it, doesn't make that true. Now, while the speaking gifts are are the most visible parts of the body of the church, the serving gifts are just as important, if not more so, because without them, 
the body will not function properly. Now, as a way of illustration, if we were a church that had 20 preschoolers and there was nobody back there willing to serve and take care of those preschoolers, what would happen? It'd be chaos, wouldn't it? I remember when my kids were preschoolers and and they were always a part of of, uh, pretty good nursery ministries. But even under the guidance of teachers, there were still all kinds of things that happened in a nursery that no parent ever wanted to happen. Hitting and biting and pushing and name calling and on and on it goes. So imagine if there were 20 preschoolers or 20 teenagers in a room with nobody there to serve as a leader to them or as a teacher to them. It would be chaos. And what would happen to the families who were a part of those parents or those preschoolers? They'd say, see you later. The preaching was great and the music was great, but I'm not putting my kids through that. I am gone. These things that are not necessarily visible and not considered to be necessary are in fact essential to the proper function of the body. We can illustrate this even more deeply by saying this. The faithful prayers of members of the church who have no office and no title and no one ever knows that they're actually praying are significantly important to the well-being of the church. Because after all, the church is a spiritual organism, and if prayer is not supporting the work of the church, it's not going to be what God desires and has designed for it to be. In a similar way, the faithful service of members always willing to help strengthen the ministry of the church is essential to the successful execution of the ministries of the church. When you get a church full of people who say, not me, not going to do it, don't like it, doesn't seem to be that big of a deal, not important to me, seems wildly inconvenient to me, that church is not going to function as it should. You get ten people who are all willing to line up to teach, and you got nobody willing to serve, It's disproportionate and the body is not going to be what God desires it to be. So all are needed. Every part of the body is needed. Every part of the church's ministry is needed in order for the church to function as it should. Now letter B in this explanation of interdependency is all are honorable. Now this is the more... Uh, tricky, tricky. It's just the trickier section of the passage. It's got a lot implied in it that's really hard to pull out, and I could spend way too much time trying to do that. But here's what it says: verse 23. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Now, less honorable probably refers to the parts of our body that are not particularly attractive. Now, it seems best as we think about the external visible parts that are generally attractive as compared to the internal parts that you can't see. Have you ever seen a liver? Have you ever seen lungs? 
I mean, there's nothing attractive about that. You go, ooh, ooh, I'm so glad that's covered. I mean, if our organs were on the outside, not only would it be incredibly dangerous, but it would be just absolutely gross. And so Paul is kind of making a connection here. So these less honorable parts probably refer to the parts of the body that are not particularly attractive. But it seems best to see this as referring to the torso region, the portion that we really hang our clothing on, right? I mean, that's what we do. Bestow literally means to put around, and it suggests the idea of clothing the body in general. Now, now we could get too far into that. I'm not going to do that. It's a can of worms. I'm not going to go there. So we spend more time and money clothing those parts of the body than the ones that are more presentable. Now, we could get into the distinction of makeup and lipsticks and nail polish and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just going to use a guy because guys don't do that. A guy's got a couple of options. I can grow some facial hair. I can not. I can do my hair a certain style or I may not. But I'll do anything to my hands. They just are what they are. But in general, hands aren't really that unpresentable. So this is kind of the idea is that we... We present or we bestow the less presentable members of our body with things that make them more honorable. Now, there's another part here that gets a little bit deeper into this, which is even more difficult to extract. So the phrase presentable members, depending upon your Bible translation, can say a number of different things. And I I think as our English language has evolved, we've kind of moved away somewhat from what is really intended here in the original language. So presentable members in the Greek means shameful or indecent. So if we're thinking about the unpresentable members, and that refers to basically the torso region, these shameful or indecent members probably refers to the reproductive parts of the body that are considered private and always expected to be covered. Now, in virtually all societies of history, with the exception of a handful of primitive primitive tribes, these parts of the body, body have been treated with great modesty. So when people treat these unpresentable body parts with care and modesty, they come to be more presentable. These parts of the body are not shameful, But it is the immodest display of these parts that is shameful. So it is likely that Paul is drawing out the superior spiritual status that was being given to those who possess the more prominent external gifts and the inferior spiritual status given to those who did not. Now, the reason, which is a lot of speculation, that Paul would have used this kind of idea within this culture is to highlight this idea, is that the spiritually elite who had the prominent gifts looked down upon those who didn't have it and would say something along the lines as, you are shameful, you are not presentable, You are not equal. You are not valuable. God did not bless you the way he blessed me. Now, why Paul did it this way and God inspired him to communicate this way, I cannot understand. I cannot explain. 
But a prominent Christian with notable Christian gifts should never look down upon a Christian with a, with, with a different giftedness Let me, let me rephrase that. A prominent Christian with noticeable external gifts should never look down upon a Christian without that same prominent giftedness as though the lack of a prominent external gift was shameful to them. So when you look down upon somebody and you say, well, God didn't gift you the same way He did me, and you're not as valuable as I am, and you're not as important to the church as I am, that kind of an attitude erodes the unity that God has created. It values only our self-promotion, and this is both a contradiction to God's design of the interdependency of the body, and it is a complete dismissal of God's sovereign distribution of gifts to each individual as He desired. So the lesson here is that care and appreciation and honor should be shown to those who do not possess the perceived prominent gifts because they are every bit as necessary to the function of the body. When we do that, we demonstrate equal value equal honor, and equal need to every member of the body regardless of their particular giftedness. So Paul will go on to say in in verse 24a, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. Our more presentable members have no need of honor. Why? Because These parts of the body are already presentable. Honor comes to them almost as a matter of course, and that honor they should share with other members. So a person who has a prominent gift, a public gift, and in this example a speaking gift, their honor is apparent by those who say, boy, that was a great message, or boy, I really appreciate the way you taught that, or boy, that really helped me understand something, or that helped me work through a problem. That honor comes in the course of due action. But the anonymous servant who is in the background that nobody ever sees or notices, and nobody ever gives any honor to, we are to give them honor to make them more presentable to those who consider them to be second-class gifts or giftedness. That's the role that we play in a body that is to be unified with equal value and equal worth. So interdependency goes a long way in letter C of creating unity. Verse 24, the second half of that, and verse 25. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no divisions in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So applying this analogy to the church, Paul now says that God's design is that more honor be given to the parts of the body that really don't get much honor and their service to Him so that unity in the body would be maintained within the body of Christ. I don't know if you've ever had to deal with disgruntled nursery workers or Sunday school teachers or other people who serve in the background. I have, and it's very, very difficult. People take advantage of them. People treat them poorly. They say mean things to them, improper things about them. 
And rather than showing honor, they throw stones. And that's not what's supposed to take place within the body of Christ. You wouldn't sit down with your thumb on a table and take a hammer and say, I don't like the one thing you did right there. Smack! You wouldn't do that, would you? Why? Because it would hurt your body. So we are to treat one another with care because every member of the body is valuable and necessary. From the most prominent gift to the least noticeable gift, mutual care is to be given to one another. This preserves what God has created. A singular body proving the need and value of every part regardless of how prominent it appears or how others perceive its value within the body of Christ. So what Paul says over and over and over is all parts of the body are necessary. Here he says all parts are honorable, all parts are to be unified, and this demonstrate this is demonstrated by mutual care for one another. The faithful nursery worker should be shown the same love and care and appreciation as the pastor. Their roles are radically different, but their value is just the same. The calling is different, the service is different, but here God says mutual value, mutual need, and mutual honor. This is the body of Christ, and this, letter D, is a shared experience that we are to have. Verse 26, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. This describes the ideal church. The church that suffers together, is honored together, and rejoices together. This is a truly unified body. Now to go back to the original example, if we had a nursery with 20 kids in it, and there was nobody to care for those 20 kids, and those 20 kids had to come in here and be a part of public adult teaching time, we would all suffer for it, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? It'd be constant. It would just never end. The, the fussing and the talking and the rattling and the other things that go on, and the mom saying, stop that, quit doing that, and the hand slapping and the leaving and the coming and the crying, and we would go, ah, where are the nursery workers? Where are the nursery workers? So when we have the nursery workers, we rejoice together that God's body is serving in the way that it should. We rejoice with it. Mutual love and concern can prevent or heal division that exists within a church and it can preserve the unity that God has created. Listen to this. There's no disdain for one another. There's no rivalry or competition with one another. There is no envy or malice with one another. There is no inferiority or superiority with one another. Only love and concern. Verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. That ought to be the attitude that we have 
as every member executes its gift, we give thanks to God that this individual member of the body is willing to do what you have gifted it to do. When our physical bodies don't do that, there has to be some compensation for it. And over time, that compensation is going to show up in some kind of a physical ailment. Always. It will always do that. Number four in our outline. Interdependency applied. This will take us from 28 to 30. Let me read this as a singular unit. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have the gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? So it is important to remember that Paul's primary emphasis is to reinforce God's sovereignty in the giving of the gifts. And we see this right away in the very first part of verse 28. And God has appointed in the church. It is God's design. It is God's choice. It is not man's doing. It is not man's choice. But it is God's. So Paul is going to make two very subtle distinctions in this list. And again, it takes some of the the Greek nuance that I am not an expert in, but depend upon scholars who are able to pull these things out. So there's a nuance in this list now that Paul is going to give. The first one, letter A, is in offices or functions in the context of spiritual gift. The latter part of, of uh, or I'll just read 28 again. And God has appointed first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Now, if you remember earlier in Paul's listing of the spiritual gifts, I said it there, and it was very, very accurate there, that Paul was not trying to create a category of lists or a hierarchy of lists or an, an all-encompassing teaching about spiritual gifts. But here he is communicating a hierarchy by saying first, second, and third. So this list is unique from what was listed earlier because it does combine an office or a function with one of the speaking gifts. So Paul indicates that there is a hierarchy in these offices or in these functions primarily, excuse me, primarily related to God's calling. Not because I think it's more important, because you think it's more important, but because of God's calling on the individual. So in the first century, there was probably some overlap between these three functions or offices that we don't necessarily see today. So apostles is rankship, is ranked first, apostleship. These are the select men that God chose to share the gospel message, the revelation of the fulfillment of the promised Messiah through the work of Christ on the cross. Apostleship is limited to the first century because it required that they be eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now Paul, who was not physically present at the resurrection the way the original disciples were, is considered an apostle because... Christ appeared to him many times in dreams and in visions, most notably on the road to Damascus. So in order to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. And so this office ended 
when the last living apostle, John, died on the island of Patmos after writing the book of Revelation. So today, one may call himself an apostle, but that does not make it so. Now, the second office or function that Paul lists here, and again, there's potentially some overlap here, is the office or function of prophet. Now, if we make the distinction between a prophet and the gift of prophecy that was illuminated earlier in verse 10, the office of prophet ceased when John died because of the revelatory nature of the inspiration to those who were communicating what was not previously known about the inspired Word of God, but the function of a prophet continues through those who explain the truth of what God has already revealed. This would be considered a permanent gift, the gift of prophecy, that is perpetuated through the life of the church by those who teach what has already been revealed about God's Word. Now, this may take place in teaching, in preaching, or in writing, Again, there's some overlap in these things. The third office or the third function that Paul notes here is that of a teacher. A teacher is probably the most broad term used to describe the speaking gifts today and would comprise those who teach as pastors and are called by God for this purpose in the church. It doesn't mean that a Sunday school teacher or somebody who teaches in in an environment other than a pulpit isn't quote-unquote a teacher, but but because Paul has seemed to make a distinction about office or function, it probably does relate to the calling of a pastor who is to use his speaking gift in the edification of the church as a whole. Now the second part in this listing that God gives, the nuance, in addition to the office or the function, is the gifts that Paul mentions here. And there's a mixture of both temporary and permanent, and these are not listed in categorized orders, they're mixed together. Latter part of verse 28, after apostle and prophet and teacher, miracles and gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. You'll notice that Paul doesn't give any hierarchy to them, and it doesn't seem to indicate any kind of a function or an office, but then does identify a second category of gift as opposed to office or function, which is why I'm treating it this way. So again, Paul implies a ranking here, but too much shouldn't be made out of this because his emphasis his emphasis is on variety of gift. Not necessarily a critical ranking of the gifts. Now, I do believe that it is significant that Paul mentions tongues last because that is the one gift that the Corinthians were hyper-focused on. They considered that to be the most prominent and the most important gift. And this, again, comes out of their experience in the mystery religions and the ecstatic utterances that were a part of their pagan idolatrous worship prior to their conversion. Now let me say this as a segue and a reminder of where we're going to get to when we get to the book when we get to the section on tongues. Now Carol can speak to this, I would guess. We haven't talked about this specifically, but Carol was raised Catholic. 
And I would imagine that in the early years of Carol's conversion, she had a natural tendency to try to find a way to fit what she's reading and learning in the Bible into Catholicism. Well, that's not what I was taught, and that's not what I experienced, but this is kind of what I'm a pattern of doing. This is what I'm accustomed to doing. So early in our conversion, it is normal for us to bring with us our past religious experience into our current spiritual relationship until it gets proven that that's not necessary, that's not appropriate any longer. Now, she might shake her head and say, no, I didn't do that. I'd say, praise God that you were set free from that. But it is our natural tendency is to bring with us into Christianity whatever was our mode of worship prior to our conversion. So because they were familiar with these ecstatic utterances based on the mystery religions, they emphasized the importance of tongues because that was the that was the epitome of the connection with a deity. So, miracles and healings, which are categorized earlier as temporary gifts, are mentioned first and were active during the first century as a means of authenticating, of authenticating both the message of the gospel and the messengers who were sharing this truth about who Jesus was. The gift of helps is sometimes called mercy or service, and as mentioned next, and is the most plentiful gift in the church today. Most would say, I can't teach, I'm not going to teach, I will leave the church if you make me teach. But they will say, yeah, I can help. Show me what I need to do. Show me how I can be of use to you. And they'll say, that's all I need to do. And I'm ready to go. I've been a part of a number of incredibly involved ministry initiatives that were great ideas But without the people with the gift of service or of helps or of mercy, they would never, ever happen. Great ministries and great ministry initiatives require servants to execute them. People in need require those with the gift of mercy to help them and encourage them. And not everybody with a speaking gift has that giftedness. But if you have a church full of people with a gift of helps, People get the love and the care and the attention that they need to heal from whatever it is that is hurting them. Paul concludes this list with various kinds of tongues, which again, we will explore in more detail when we get to chapter 14. So we also see Paul's emphasis of unity within diversity right away. Let us see one body one Lord. Notice the rhetorical question that is being asked before each office or function or gift is mentioned. All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not prophets, are apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? No. All are not workers of miracles, are they? All, are, all do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? So what does that mean? It means there are a variety of gifts and ministries, but the same God who gave them, and they are to be experienced within the unified body of Christ with equal value, equal honor, and equal interdependent need. God does not intend for everyone to have the same gift or the same function. Not everyone has speaking gifts, and not everyone has serving gifts. And so the responsibility of each believer and of each member of the church 
is to accept the gift God has given them and to use it in gratitude and faithfulness to build up the body of Christ where God has placed them. To not do so is irresponsible and sinful. With whatever God has gifted you, if you don't use it in the church to build up the body, it is irresponsible and it is sinful and it ignores the necessary role you play in the life of the church. Now in closing, the final verse in this section is a segue to the next section, but it's more than just a segue. Verse 31, but earnestly desire the greatest gift, the greater gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. This is probably one of the more misunderstood verses in this section on spiritual gifts. Now, thinking about all that Paul has said about the sovereignty of God give, of God's gifts, giving them to each member exactly as he desired, it's doubtful that Paul is now telling them to earnestly desire the greater gifts that they do not possess because to do that would ignore God's sovereignty in the giving of the gift. Well, God, all you did was give me this gift and I want to, I earnestly desire the greater gift, whatever that greater gift might be in your mind. So how do we understand this verse then? That is a segue into the next section. There are several options. Number one, Paul could be saying, and it's not a clear translation from the Greek into the English languages, but what, what Paul could be saying is, but you earnestly desire the greater gifts. Here's all I've had to say about one body, about one spirit, about the variety of gifts and the necessity of them all. And in spite of all that I've said, you still desire the greater gifts. And you do so to the neglect of the gifts that God has given you. The reason this is potentially true is captured in this phrase, earnestly desire. That phrase, earnestly desire, often has a negative connotation of envy or jealousy or covetousness, all of which are sinful. So if Paul is saying, you earnestly desire the greater gifts, he's not giving them an imperative command that in spite of the gift you've been given, pursue the greater gifts. It's likely that Paul is identifying a sinful desire for a gift that you do not possess that you deem to be more important or more necessary or more prominent than the one that you have. It could be that Paul is pointing out their desire for these perceived greater gifts is in fact filled not with what he's going to show them next, but it's actually filled with sin, self-promotion, self-gratification. The second option is that Paul is reciting what was a popular Corinthian slogan. That popular Corinthian slogan may have been earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now we saw this same kind of thing earlier when we were looking at Christian liberty, and this began in chapter 6, 
with a prominent Christian slogan that said, all things are lawful. So the Corinthian would say, all things are lawful for me, but Paul would say, but not all things are profitable. The Corinthian would say, all things are lawful for me, and Paul would say, but I will not be mastered by anything. So it's possible that here Paul is using something that they have said to him, and the letter that they wrote to him that we do not have a copy of, And so Paul is using the slogan against them and saying, I will show you a more excellent way of this slogan that you have about earnestly desiring the greater gifts. Thirdly, the option could be, Paul could be pointing to chapter 13 as the greater gift in the sense that this is what is most beneficial to the church. The problem with that is simply this. Love is not a spiritual gift. Nowhere in the Bible is love listed as a spiritual gift. Love is a Christian virtue that is produced by the Holy Spirit. So imagine this. You read the command, love one another. Well, yeah, God didn't give me the gift of love, so I don't have to do that. Thank God for that because this is really hard. No, that's not what it says at all. The fruit, singular, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, right? So love is not a spiritual gift. Love is the byproduct of the Spirit's work in you to love those that you deem to be less lovable. I believe that Paul is probably saying, number one, that you have a sinful desire for the more prominent gifts because it boasts you up and makes you feel spiritually superior to those with a different giftedness from you. But my friend, I'm going to show you a better way. And this is what chapter 13 is all about. Chapter 13 is the context for how we are to use our spiritual gifts. Because regardless of how prominent or important you think your gift is, if it's not exercised in love, what is it? It's nothing. It's meaningless. If you've got the gift of prophecy and don't have love, you're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Well, that's not good. So Paul is going to show them how spiritual gifts are to be utilized within the church. And again, this is the greater way, and this again points to how a church can experience what God has provided in a singular unified body with mutual care and affection for one another. Would you join me in prayer, please?